the Panhandle News Network. The views and opinions on this station do not necessarily represent the Panhandle News Network, WEPM and WCST, or West Virginia Radio Corporation. Here we go! Welcome to Panhandle Live on WEPM and WCST, the Panhandle News Network. Panhandle Live is brought to you by Sutton and Janelle Attorneys at Law. Visit their new location at 224 West King Street, Martinsburg, and online at suttonandjanelle.com. Here are your hosts, Jordan Nicewarner and Marsha Kabalik. Welcome into the Friday edition of Panhandle Live. Marsha Kavalik here. It's Jordan's birthday, so uh, he gets the day off. Hope he's having a good day. I hope he's really not invested in anything that's going on at work so he can totally enjoy his birthday. So uh, wherever he is, I hope he's having a good one. And uh, you got me uh, solo for the rest of the hour, but we've got some good content coming up. Um, Before we get started, Panhandle Live is brought to you by Sutton and Janelle full-service law firm serving West Virginia and Maryland, helping individuals, families, businesses, all with, with all their legal needs. The right attorney can make all the difference in the outcome of your case, family law, criminal defense, DUI, personal injury, mediation. They provide legal counsel tailored to your needs. You can visit them online at suttonandjanelle.com or their historic location, downtown Martinsburg, at 224 West King Street. So we really appreciate their uh, support of local radio. So wanted to get into a few of the um, the news updates uh, that we are following. And uh, I know we, we broke this yesterday afternoon. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, Morgan County Sheriff Casey Borer had uh, sent on a press release and he sent us an update. Uh, the man killed in a crash early Thursday morning in Morgan County has been identified. Morgan County Sheriff Casey Borer tells the Panhandle News Network it happened on State Route 9 in the 8,000 block of Martinsburg Road around 8 in the morning. Preliminary investigation indicates a 2009 Honda driven by 27-year-old Austin Ray Wise of Hedgesville ran off the road and struck a power pole. Wise was ejected, and he died uh, as a result of that crash. Uh, His next of kin has been notified. I know when Sheriff Bohr sent us that initial uh, press release. They were holding off on identifying him until his next of kin could be notified. But the victim has been identified as 27-year-old Austin Ray Wise of Hedgesville, West Virginia 9, of course, shut down for an extended period of time, as will happen when there is a fatality because they have to do some extra investigation, crime scene, you know, um, reenactment, all that, not crime scene, accident scene uh, investigation. So I just wanted to give you an an update on that. Um, Also, programming note, it is the WVSSAC State Baseball Tournament happening in our state. And we've got uh, a lot of those games uh, on metronews.com of particular interest to the Eastern Panhandle, the semifinal in the AAA. And that's happening today. Semifinal number one is happening this afternoon, beginning at 5. It's number one Jefferson, the Jefferson Cougars, with a record of 33-4 and four, versus number four George Washington, who has a record of 20-15. and 15. That game gets underway at 5 p.m. You can hear it right here on the Panhandle News Network. You can see all of the uh, WVSSAC state baseball tournament, and um, you can hear it and see it 
at wvmetronews.com as well. But if you're out and about tonight and you just want to listen in, tune into that. You can hear it on WEPM and WCST. Of course, we're very proud that we've got a presence there um, in in the Panhandle team, Jefferson Cougars. Now, um, there's another game about 50 minutes after the game between Jefferson and George Washington. So semifinal number two is Hurricane with a record of 32-4 and four against number three, Bridgeport, who's got a 34-5 and, uh, and five record. That's 50 minutes after the finish of game one. So I guess they can't really predict when the, the game against Jefferson. And George Washington is going to finish up. So tune in at five. Just lock it in. Have it on if you're interested in listening to um, some good high school baseball and, and great play-by-play also. So um, tomorrow is the championship in AAA. So uh, 45 minutes after the Class A final, uh, which they're guessing is probably going to happen around 4 p.m., uh, hopefully it'll be our Jefferson Cougars, uh, you know, squaring off against whoever wins against uh, between Hurricane and Bridgeport. Anyway, so tune in tomorrow, Saturday, June 4th uh, at about 4 p.m. And hopefully Jefferson will be playing uh, in the championship. Uh, there is ticketing. If you want to get over there and see it in person, uh, you can find uh, information at wvssac.org. Uh, and gofan.co slash WVSSAC. All session passes or individual session passes can be purchased in advance. No paper tickets will be sold at Appalachian Power Park. Stadium staff staff will be able to assist customers with digital ticketing, it says. So um, if you want to make it down to Charleston, I'm sure there are some folks from the Panhandle who are heading down there for that. So um, just wanted to let you know those are some of the updates. Also, a correction from yesterday. Uh, we may have mentioned the wrong date at least once during that interview um, with um, the Morgan County or Morgan Cabin Association. Wanted to make sh- sure that folks know that the Morgan Cabin is going to be open and part of Ye Old Berkeley Fest. And that's part of that huge uh, weekend pass uh, weekend activity that is celebrating as part of the Berkeley County 250th commemoration uh, that involves Juneteenth and um, West Virginia Day. And so the Morgan Cabin's going to be open with a lot of uh, docents and a lot of cool stuff going on, and that's going to be June 18th. I think we may have inadvertently said at some point during yesterday's comments that it was happening in July, but it's actually June 18th Morgan Cabin um, event for the old Berkeley Fest is June 18th, and I believe that's from 10 to 4. You can check out the Morgan Cabin Historical Association, of course, for more information and some really great tidbits. If you want to hear that interview that we did yesterday uh, with uh, the folks from Morgan Cabin Association, you can hear that on our Panhandle Live Facebook and Spotify. Some really great details, some of them a little grainy, a um, little uh, edgy because it was in the 1700, so frontier justice and all that. Um, so a lot of history has happened in quiet little Bunker Hill uh, that you would maybe never catch uh, if you're just driving through town. But you can hear a lot of that great history at the Morgan Cabin Association's event uh, for Yield Berkeley Fest, June 18th. So check out Morgan County, um, Morgan Cabin, excuse me, Association's website um, or Facebook page for that. So uh, Martinsburg City Hall is closed for in-person business and uh, we'll give you more of that uh, and those details uh, when we come back after this quick break you are listening to panhandle live
Live and local, it's Panhandle Live with hosts Jordan Nice Warner and Marsha Kavalik. Morning, y'all. Panhandle Live, Friday edition. It's Marsha. Jordan is enjoying a wonderful, hopefully very happy birthday. Um, yeah, our company decided pretty recently to give us all our birthdays off, which is outstanding. So hopefully he's enjoying that and not listening to the product. Of course, if he wants to, he can listen to it again. It'll be posted on our Facebook page around noon today. So uh, if you want to catch any of the previous um episodes you're welcome to do that at panhandle lives facebook page give us a follow um also wepm wcst the panhandle network on facebook um you can like that page or follow it uh, like and follow uh to get updates because uh sometimes i'll put our breaking news stories and our updates on that page so you can if you if you haven't been around to catch one of our newscasts you can um you know catch up on the, on the news that way. So you can see some of those news updates. I don't, I don't fill everyone's uh, news feed with a lot of uh, clickbait or garbage. Uh, if it's something I feel like the panhandle needs to, to hear, um, you know, I'll put that up. Jordan will do the same with sports. There was some breaking news about Shepard's women's um, basketball team that uh, occurred yesterday as well. So those are the kinds of things we're going to put up. We're not going to give you clickbait about um, Amber and Johnny and, and all of that. So anyway, uh, you might you might know it is moving day uh, over at Martinsburg City Hall. Uh, so in-person business is closed today. They'll be closed to walk-in traffic. That doesn't mean you can't conduct business via phone uh, but um, or the internet, but they're closed to walk-in traffic from today through next Friday so they can temporarily move to Viking Way across the street from us. They'll reopen to the public on June 13th. So uh, here with the deets, this is a, a conversation that Jordan and I had uh, earlier in uh, May with Mayor Kevin Knowles to kind of explain some updates about um, the the woolen mill project, some of the construction updates, and of course the move. So I wanted to bring that to you as well. There. Oh yeah, if you've not yeah. been there, you got to go over. There. I've been over to the Am Stevens house, but I didn't know there the, were caves. We'll, we'll get you a, a tour of the yeah the cave. It's that, a, I love that little that little that park, cave that goes little all area. down and goes through town, but the, it's not open yeah. to go through. But yeah, you yeah. can see the they take you down and you can see it. Well, I did not know that. Yeah, it's it's pretty pretty mm-hmm. amazing. There's a lot of a lot of things that people don't know about the city of Martinsburg. And, yeah, you know that whole area. That's where the that was the main street. Water Street was Is that know? right. And right on the corner, there was the first electric house in the in the city of Martinsburg. How about that? Wow. And I did a not big know. plaque there. You know, go down no, and read I the plaque. To, I go down there all the time. I love that little Stop area around the Adam Stevens house. Yeah, I'm usually riding through plaque. it on the bike, but right. it's such a pretty little park there in the Adam Stevens house. That's a good little so fishing pretty. hole, too. I mean, they, they, Oh, I always see people down there fishing. Yeah, they, 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 they um, stock that with trout mm-hmm. when it comes. Yeah. And after listening, there might be people swimming down there now, too. Well, you know, Once, that typically there's not, it's not <laughs> deep, but the water is flowing pretty good that That's day. true. City and county leaders you know, set the tone for that. Like, it, it, they're uh, getting in the water. Fully dressed. <laughs> wow. Well, duck derbies aren't the only thing going on. There's a lot of improvements coming around uh, to downtown Martinsburg, especially like the underpass. How's that coming along? Well, you, you, if you drive by now, you can see the activity going on right now, and that's just getting it all prepped up and everything. And, and that's going to be a, a beautiful 
uh, streetscape for when, when we get done. You know, that side wall is going to have some type of possibly murals on it that we're going to be able to interchange out throughout the year. Um, little, little pocket areas mm-hmm. for play for people to be in. It's it's just going to be a, a, a nice gateway into the downtown area. And, and you know, that's been in long in, in planning. It's been long on the books. And, and we're just so excited that uh, City Council has uh, – has seen fit to move forward and any changes that have come up. Cause no matter what, whenever you get, you get a bit, there's always some kind of change order mm-hmm. that comes cause you don't see what happens, you mm-hmm. know, and you know, when they start doing some work, something else shows up. So city council has been very good at being able to, to help this and move this along a lot quicker, a lot faster. It does seem like it's moving pretty quick. Yeah. It, it, once they get started, uh, yeah, you'll, you'll start seeing that. So, and you know, here we are now going into the, you know, the summer months and you, you'll see a lot more activity going on there. You'll see, Activity down at the uh, Frog Hollow Trail. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's, it's uh, some now that was up for bid for construction and whatnot not too long ago. So I'm guessing somebody's yeah, got yeah. So it. so it, it's it, it's in the works right now and it's still on the books. Hopefully to be done by fall. You okay, know? that's that's the hopes right now. But you know the way the way the world is these days. You know with the costs and and materials and all that. Uh, you know and lack of supplies that could push it back. Mm-hmm. But that's that's our hopes to have that that up and running. Our guest this morning, Mayor Kevin Knowles from the city of Martinsburg. Of course, Metro News has been following the series of uh, opioid uh, trials that West Virginia Attorney General Patrick Morrissey has been bringing. Uh, some of those have, have ended in settlements, which means opioid settlement money could be matriculating down to municipalities and counties. So uh, where do we stand as far as the metric for distributing those? Well, the, the metric is already out there. I mean, we've, we've signed MOUs between cities and the city and the county, and there is a, a metric out there that, uh, that has been set up, not, not locally. It's been set up, I think, nationally or, or statewide. Uh, you know, I think the, the state, or the attorney general is getting like 74% of it. And, hmm. You know, Those to, are attorney fees, right? Uh, is that how that works? Uh, well, the seventy-four so percent to me is pretty high, and, <laughs> and then you know, twenty-six percent of that it gets divvied up between cities and and cities and and, and counties. So, you know, the one good thing about um, the city of Martinsburg, we, we we know we've been in the the thick of things. If 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 everybody has, and I have, so I, I I know what what needs to be done. I know the areas that need to be addressed, and there are some things law enforcement and and, and um, first responders, which is huge because, you know, there was a lot of strain put on uh, both of those, all the first responders during this whole time uh, that we want to be able to do and make sure we could do something for them. To what would that look like? It. Well, you know, I think we have already started something like that. The Martinsburg Initiative have, has brought on a social worker. So, I mean, those, that's, a, that's a huge help, you know, because, you know, first responders aren't social workers, you know, and they're, they're not trained to be, and and we don't expect them to be. So we want to give them all of the the the, the help that we can have to, to, to be able to make their job much easier. So I know addiction recovery is close to your heart, and um, you and I have talked about this before that, you know, depending on how much that money turns out to be, if it's a, a big amount of money, what would a large ticket item look like as far as if you had a wish list you know that what? you could... It, one thing that the, this uh, this area hasn't had in quite a while that that has always been dear to my heart and also to I, I believe the uh, police department is that uh, there hasn't been a public intoxication place a place where somebody would you know might be publicly intoxicated mm-hmm. not instead of taking them to jail take them to a, a facility that they have an opportunity to talk to a social worker a peer have an opportunity to possibly uh, get into some type of treatment program to address 
the issues they might have. So I think that's something that, you know, we would probably work with, uh, you know, at least for me that I'd like to see work with, you know, an organization like Eastridge or anything like that. There used to be one down on, on uh, John Street years ago and uh, Eastridge ran it. And, and we're in the process and we're doing talks and, and moving forward to make that happen with or without those uh, those funds. Staffing, of course, obviously um, among government employees statewide, countywide, citywide, uh, becomes an issue because there's so much competition. Uh, if you have a, a building like that, a program like that, would you be able to adequately um, use city funds to, you know, man well, the, it? Well, the city wouldn't be manning it. We'd have an organization. We just would help out financially if we could. And that's just a thought. It's not mm -hmm. anything on the books or anything talked about at this point. But we also have, uh, uh, you know, you, you talked about personnel. I mean, we're 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 lightly staffed at City Hall because of lack of trying to get people to come to you know to mm -hmm. work. You know we have we have uh, positions open with the city. If anybody's looking for a job, please get in contact with City of Martinsburg, Steve McBride, Human Resources. We have administrative positions open. We have off we have openings in our planning department. These are important positions to make the city grow instead of having things sit on, on a desk. So it's very very important to 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 know that as the city is growing and, and I tell people, keep your eyes and ears open. Martinsburg is moving forward and we're moving forward real quick, real fast. You know, we're working closely with, with monument. There's going to be a, a huge uh, storm drain uh, uh, system being put in. That's going to affect that whole area. We're going to be able to. You're talking about the mill area. Yeah. We're, yeah, we're going to be doing some construction possibly down there and doing some streetscape, mm -hmm. it's going to capture 61 acres of stormwater, wow. which is going to take over 2 million gallons away from our water sewage plant. So that's mm -hmm. a huge deal. Absolutely. And, and, and we already have our streetscape set up because you can go down and take a look at Martin Street. You know, there's work now starting to be on the Apollo from the ARPA funds and, and then the, the stuff that's being done down at the Roundhouse with the ARPA funds. So all that, that funding that we had that we were able to give out is now starting to, to come to fruition. Yeah, we're speaking with City of Martinsburg uh, Mayor Kevin Knowles, and uh, if anybody does want to apply to start working at City Hall, now would be the right time to do it because they could be getting a new office here very yeah, soon. Yeah. Get in on the ground floor, uh, yeah. decorate yeah, your yeah, own well, place. Well, I, you know, right now, in fact, I, when I leave here, it's right across the street. It's going to be in Viking Way. Uh, the, the the desks and everything are being put in there as we speak right now. There's a move set up. Uh, there's going to be a, a time period that City Hall is going to be shut down to the public so that we have an opportunity to get everything together. Doesn't mean that you can't still do business online and drop mm -hmm. things off, but um, it's 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 an exciting time for exciting, but also um, I want to say nervous time because oh, yeah. you know you know all, everybody's got to move. It's it's kind of hard to move all these parts all at one time, and and not everybody's comfortable with change and mm -hmm. and here we are taking what we need to move up there we have to decide what do we take what do we put in long storage and all that so it's it's, it's been quite a process and and andy blake and uh, has been taking the, the 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 head on this and he and him he and mark bowen have done a wonderful job the whole staff i i can't say enough about the staff of the city of Martinsburg and the department heads on everything that they've done, not only for this move, but for things moving forward to make the city move forward. And how long is the new city hall process you think it'd take roughly? Well, uh, again, because of the times mm -hmm. we're in, it, it, it's scheduled for about two years, but you know, that, that could change. I don't see it being any sooner, but it could be longer. So we have a, a at least a two year lease over here at Viking way. And they've, they've done wonderful to bring it up to speed to where we need to be.
Absolutely. We've been speaking with City of Martinsburg Mayor Kevin Knowles. Uh, there is definitely a lot going on in and around Martinsburg, and it's uh, exciting to be a part of it, and it's, it's exciting to see uh, as well. So thank you for coming in and sharing some of that well, with it's us. It's always, always nice to get in here and talk to you guys. So that was an update with uh, Mayor Kevin Knowles from uh, a little earlier. In, well, it was in May, uh, so it, that was last month. So today is moving day. You can look on the City Hall's uh, Facebook page for the announcement. It's moving day for City Hall. They'll be closed to walk in traffic from today through next Friday while they temporarily move to Viking Way. Uh, they'll reopen to the public June 13th. Uh, as the mayor mentioned, that doesn't mean you can't do city business. It may be online or via call. So, um, you know, call ahead, see what what they would like you to do. But today is moving day for them. And as the mayor mentioned, because they are renovating the old city hall, rehabbing it, refabbing it, it could take two years. So they may be in that Viking Way location for two years. So just uh, if you if you're a resident of the city, uh, you may want to go ahead and uh, and and get to get used to the idea that. Uh, that your city business is going to be at Viking Way for a little bit. More Panhandle Live after this quick break. John Saldana from uh, the Chambers College of Business. From WVU. Gotcha. That is correct. WVU uh, did a study, right, or you did a study about supply chain, right, um, and uh-huh. and uh, how it is affecting the, the formula shortage. So um, walk us through that and, and say your name again. So uh, my name is John Sudana. I am an associate professor of uh, supply chain management in the Chambers College of Business, and I also hold a CS chair in global supply chain management. So talk to us about um, why are we facing a formula shortage here in the United States? Um, you know, we typically are on top of a lot of this. We're the ones that are usually sending formula or supplies to other countries when they have a need uh this is you know this is not just a little embarrassing but it is a crisis especially if you've got an infant who depends on this absolutely so uh, pre-pandemic the u.s national average of stock up that is the number of times you go to the grocery store and are not able to find a product it's considered a stock out the number of times we had that on average across the U.S. for infant formula was in the range of 5 to 7 percent. Uh, with the onset of the pandemic and the supply chain problems, that jumped up to about 10 percent, which in the infant formula industry is considered to be sort of a red flag when it gets to that level, uh, especially for infants who need formula, especially the specialized formulas for hypoallergenic uh, purposes. And uh, starting in January, you started seeing that stock up from the climb beyond 10% and approach the 20% mark in February, March. And there were two reasons for that. Obviously, the, the pandemic shortages due to transportation issues and supply issues that were exacerbated by the stock out, by the, by the forced lockdowns and by the, 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 the problem with supplies and, and uh, transportation capacity. But the big thing that actually brought uh, this infant formula to a crisis stage was the sh- voluntary shutting down of the Sturgis uh, Michigan plant by Abbott. So Abbott has um, or had close to a 43% market share of the infant formula market in the U.S. Uh, Abbott and uh, Record Ben Kisser, they control close to 80%. So that's the problem right there. You have such a large, uh, almost an oligopoly 
of the infant formula market, and you also have these, uh, these significant regulations that prevent any new competition from coming in because of the of the strict and stringent quality requirements for infant formula manufacturer. Okay, so, so if, if I could just interrupt you, because I've, I've got questions. So how does something like that happen? Because anyone, even folks who don't have an economics degree, um, anyone could look at that and say, you know, it's probably not a good idea to have uh, one company in charge of something uh, or the majority of the supply for something that is essentially like a medicine. Absolutely. Yeah, you're absolutely right on that. And, and to, to that to that latter point, uh, I think the, the FDA commission is looking at um, is looking at creating a stockpile of emergency infant formula, uh, something that should have been considered. So several factors over time. Um, on the demand side, birth rates have dropped, uh, breastfeeding has increased, and so the market for infant formula stagnated. And it's not been seen as something that competition would actually thrive in because with the stagnant market, uh, the existing players just kept gobbling more and more market share. And the other factor that's actually influencing this is the federal government and states are probably the largest uh, purchaser of infant formula through the Women's and Infant uh, and Children Program, the WIC program, uh, states around the U.S. they kind of they have sole um, contracts with each of these individual manufacturers. The two big ones, obviously, are Abbott and Record Ben Kisser, but you also have um, you also have Nestle that is a, a smaller market share. Uh, you know, it's, it's close. It's less than ten percent. So with the, between these three, they actually control most of the state's supply of WIC. And when retailers have this exclusive contract for WIC, it, it, it behooves them to actually, you know, have a sole, a single supplier because now you can you can leverage the economies of scale and get discounts with that supplier. So if you look around the United States, you can actually see different states actually have different contracts with an individual supplier of infant formula. So that's kind of how we got to this point. Part of demand, Part of regulation, part of uh, you know trying to trying to have the the formula available to to um, to communities who cannot afford it, um, and, and especially for children who cannot have breast milk or cannot have other other sources of nutrition before the age of six months and twelve months. So you know, it sounds like this is kind of many different issues that. Um resulted in kind of a perfect storm. But whenever we talk about things like, you know, like formula, which some babies depend on in, in order to live, um, is this, could this rise to the occasion of being a national security issue that we that we have so few suppliers and that some of this is not really happening, the production robustly in in our country? Absolutely. I mean, and again, um, you know, I, I as, a, as an expert in supply chain, have not been focusing on the baby infant industry per se. I've been looking more in my research at manufacturing of, of machinery, you know, automobile, um, marine equipment. But in this regard, when I mean, this came on my radar and actually studied the market itself, um, it, it almost seems to me that it, it is incumbent upon manufacturers who look at consumers and customers who re- rely upon their product and it becomes a, it becomes a existential problem, it becomes a life and death issue, that they should hopefully work with um, the right stakeholders, government included, and customers to figure out 
what are some of the contingencies that might might be planned in case there is an issue. For example, when Abbott had to take the drastic step of voluntarily uh, recalling their formula when there were four deaths uh, to investigate whether there was any contamination that could have occurred in their plant in Sturgis, that should have been something that they should have understood, that that plant is responsible for close to a fifth of the total infant formula production in the U.S. And more importantly, it is one of the one of, I don't know how many, but a, a small handful of plants that are exclusively producing the, the specialized formula for um, hypoallergenic purposes and for uh, infants who cannot have any other nutrition. So there has to be some way, uh, you know, I mean, to call it a national security, it could be, it wouldn't be a stretch because even though this would not directly affect uh, preparedness, uh, it would certainly have some impact upon it because, you know, if you have a child at home, you, you, you know, as a parent, mm-hmm. it's going to it's going to kill you with worry. Absolutely, and and literally could could take lives. Uh, I've heard anecdotally that it has this you know formula shortage has resulted in illness and potentially death. John Saldana is with us, Doctor John Saldana from the John Chambers uh, College of Business and Economics in at WVU. He's been studying the supply chain issue with formula in the United States to extrapolate that out. Um, you know, I know when when I was growing up, a lot of uh, what we consumed was also produced on our shores, which made things a lot easier. We've been seeing, especially with the pandemic, putting more of a magnifying glass on supply chains, um, issues with, for example, semiconductors and and mm-hmm. other implements that, um, that are part of computers, yes, but also in the framework of national security. Can you speak to that at all? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, we have, we've, in the last two, three years, seen as you rightly put it, a perfect storm. And this is something that supply chain professionals, my colleagues, academics in the community have been, have been uh, beating the drums on for the last two decades at least. And that is a simple concept of mapping your supply chain and knowing your suppliers, suppliers, suppliers. So we have first-tier suppliers, second-tier suppliers who supply the first-tier suppliers with raw materials and so on. And just to give you an example uh, on semiconductors that you brought up, um, I mean, we all think about neon, and for most of us, when we think about neon, we think about neon signs that we see, you know, lighting up uh, our night skylines. Mm-hmm. Now, neon that is used in that purpose for, um, for 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 lighting purposes and for and for signage purposes makes up a very small percentage of the total neon demand in the world. Most of the neon goes into producing lasers that is used for uh, for lithography, that is for etching. The, for, for etching on silicon wafers, which are the raw materials that go into producing all the, semiconduct, uh, the, the, the semiconductors, that, the raw materials that go into producing all of the chips that we have in all of the devices around us. So you've heard of the, the semiconductor shortage that, uh, that was part of the pandemic supply chain issues. I mean, the war in Ukraine, Ukraine is one of the largest producers of neon in the world, and that's another... Uh, place where now we're seeing a significant potential shortage of neon uh, during the during the 2014 uh, invasion of Ukraine um, in Crimea, China saw this as a significant uh, threat to their own production of semiconductors, and so they started increasing neon capacity in their own uh, in their own country. So you know, here is an example of you not having to just go back to your supplier, supplier, supplier. They're going all the way back to the machinery 
that is used to produce the materials at your third or fourth or fifth year supplier. So, you know, mapping the supply chain and doing it as comprehensively as possible and then identifying the bottlenecks and the potential uh, issues that could arise uh, is, is, is critical, especially for those industries and those manufacturers that produce items that are critical for our everyday use, everyday survival, and even for uh, our, our preparedness purposes. With the so, unrest... You know, with the unrest that's happening globally, um, should we actually be taking a, a page out of the playbook of China and and looking more internally at, at um, not having to depend on other countries for some of these? And in in the end, whose who's responsibility is that? Is that private industries in terms of, you know, how the United States typically works? Or is that, you know, the government's job? Is that a national security responsibility? So there's, there's, it's, a, it's a complicated question and a complicated answer. Um, and um, my first instinct would say it's a public-private partnership. Those are uh, there's, there's many good and, and, and successful case studies from that. Um, for example, if we were to take the Abbott, exa- the Abbott case and um, we would say, okay, government needs to regulate that. Um, how would how would the government understand or, or, or have companies? Um, reveal that they are putting all their eggs in one basket. Because on the manufacturer side, it makes complete sense to realize economies of scale and to produce larger and larger uh, quantities in a single plant and to bring down costs. That would be a business decision. So, um, But I think uh, we need to work across industries and see where critical supplies are. And to your point, um, it has to be a public-private partnership. Private companies have to examine their supply chains, map their supply chains, and see where there are critical links, and hopefully bring it to the notice of, you know, stakeholders. In this case, the big stakeholders of the federal government who have big contracts with these companies, and, you know, point out to them that, hey, we have this potential problem where all of our supplies come from this one plant, or maybe all our raw materials come from this one supplier. Um, how do we... How do we address this if there is an issue of contamination or there's an issue uh, with a simple fire or there's an issue with a simple accident that brings down the that brings down the plant and puts it offline for a couple of days or a week or a month because now the plant has been offline for uh, about four or five months and it's precipitated this significant problem that uh, endangered the lives of so many of our children. So I think it's a public-private partnership, starting with the companies to examine their supply chain, see where the vulnerabilities are, understand how those vulnerabilities can be overcome, working with key stakeholders in the public arena, and seeing how we can bring that. I mean, why go any further than looking at our food supply chain? Right. Where do we get our food from? You know, I mean, that's talking about preparedness. And going back to the Second World War, a lot of our food programs, food subsidies, started with increasing the calorific uh, content of our foods because coming out of the Great Depression, we had a big preparedness issue because a lot of the young men who showed up at, uh, at the centers for uh, recruitment for uh, military could not be cleared medically because they were, un- they were malnourished. Yeah, everyone was hungry. So, exactly. Coming out of the Great Depression, many people you know, were malnourished. So going back to the simple issue of commodities and foods, um, how much of our food comes from overseas? I mean, here at West Virginia University, we are working on that issue to grow more food here in West Virginia and to grow healthier food because, again, um, our, our other epidemic is um, diabetes and obesity. Mm-hmm. How do we have uh, 
quality food that goes into our grocery shelves that uh, can help our, our population be healthy, eat healthy, and, and have food that is sourced closer to home. John Saldana, Dr. John Saldana uh, is with a Sears Chair in Global Supply Chain Management and Associate Professor at WVU. It's a fascinating conversation. So, you know, all of these uh, questions that, that I've been answering you uh, or asking you and uh, lead to, are, are these conversations being um, conducted in, in the right places, in your opinion? I mean, we're talking about supply chain here on the ground because, you know, for example, when the when the pandemic started, suddenly, inexplicably, there was uh, a glut of toilet paper, for example. We're, you know, so on the ground, we see these little uh, blips in the supply chain. Are the right people talking about it nationally? And is this something that the government will be uh, in charge of, or as you mentioned, will it have to be that private, um, you know, government partnership? Yes, the public, uh, the public-private partnership, I believe, essential because the government has the critical infrastructure. For example, the you know, in, in the invoking of the Defense Production Act uh, in in the case of PPE at the beginning of the pandemic, and then for uh, for helping uh, fast-track immunizations for the COVID um, for the COVID pandemic and to start those uh, those things going we the government has that I mean we the people elect the government to make sure that it looks out for us right and to, to ensure our security and that's an important part of it individual companies don't have that individual companies have the, the expertise to do what they do best which is manufacture those items uh, transport those items uh, make sure those items are available in their stores so they have those core competencies that they need to focus on. I think it's critical. I'm not sure to answer your question whether the right people are looking at it, but uh, I know in academia, um, we do our research, we present our papers. Sometimes some of us get you know, invited to different forums, uh, you know, including the media, which is an important part of, of making sure that people understand these problems. But uh, you know, I know that there are several summits that the White House uh, in, in numerous administrations have have uh, convened in order to ensure that um, these problems are put in front of the key policymakers. I know that Capitol Hill has called uh, folks in from the supply chain area to, to discuss this issue. But usually these issues are sort of, in my opinion at least, um, from, from seeing what are following these conversations on, on uh, mass media, is these are sort of uh, after the fact putting out fires and more often than not, you know, they're, they're too late. And so maybe a proactive approach to start looking at how can we put all the right experts and the leaders into the rooms together and, and, and come up with a comprehensive plan to see how do we, how do we address uh, potential issues in the future and see where the vulnerabilities are. And the good news is that the, the, the pandemic has actually put in front of business leaders at least the vulnerabilities they have in their supply chains. For example, if you have far-reaching supply chains and you start lockdowns in China, Italy, Brazil, many, many companies realize that these far-flung supply chains, while very expensive, while very cheap and inexpensive, they are very fragile and they can be broken with a very simple, you know, a port stoppage or a, or a transportation disruption or you have ships waiting in Los Angeles for weeks at a time to come in. And that's what that's another reason why Reckitt and Benkissa couldn't get their supplies into the U.S. because of the ships stuck out in Los Angeles for up to 40 days, potentially. So, you know, even, even if you have the formula, if you don't have the packaging, uh, something as simple as cardboard and tin and, and, and labeling 
and you can't put it on a truck because you don't have corrugated cases to to load those cans into. Uh, something as simple as that can can you know put disruption in your supply chain and prevent your product from getting to market. So, it really is yeah. fascinating. You know, here on the ground, folks not able to find tinned cat food and all of that. Dr. John Saldana. Uh, Sears Chair in Global Supply Chain Management and Associate Professor at WVU. Are you seeing in your uh, crystal ball what the next big shortage is going to be? <laughs> uh, well, uh, the right answer I'm hoping is no more shortages. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I mean, it, 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 again, it's, it's, um, I would really hope that um, for critical supplies there's no shortages and companies you know, take these seriously, and uh, and and we we work. I mean, starting with 9/11, for example, I wrote a paper with my then supervisor at Penn State, and uh, we talked about you know what are the issues that can affect us. But instead of sort of being myopic, and you know, it's our human nature. We get influenced by the most recent event. But taking a more uh, academic look and uh, an objective look and seeing what is it in my supply chain as a industry as a company leader. That could affect my uh, that could affect my my manufacturing or my transportation and and um, where can I work with other uh, partners in my industry to make sure that we can together either address it ourselves or maybe work with government agencies uh, because if we look downstream at our customers and our consumers how do they get affected by shortages and where is the critical need and eventually. You may never know. It might be a can of paint that cannot be used on a on a on a on a fighter jet somewhere that mm-hmm. can cause you know a preparedness issue. So again, think about how complex these machines are in the military complex, in uh, in a regular life that can cause issues with uh, preparedness. Well, wow. fascinating conversation, Dr. John Saldana from WVU, Sears Chair in Global Supply Chain Management and Associate Professor. Uh, I'm, I'm going to give your information to Hoppy because I think he would enjoy uh, chatting about uh, some of these issues as well to our uh, statewide audience. But thank you for spending some time with us. Obviously, formula shortage, one of um, many in a series, but this one's life and death. And appreciate you uh, bringing your wisdom to this this morning. Oh, thank you for having me on the show. Appreciate it. Alrighty, you take good care. All right, you too. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Marsha. And more Panhandle Live after this quick break. You're listening to Panhandle Live on the Panhandle News Network. Welcome back to Panhandle Live. Here are your hosts, Jordan Nice Warner and Marsha Kavalik. Welcome back in the waning seconds of Panhandle Live. Marsha Kavalik here. Jordan Nice Warner is enjoying his birthday. Thanks to Sutton and Janelle for their sponsorship. See you next week. WVRC Media Station. We're proud to live here too.